All right, let me lead us in a corporate prayer now to finish off our prayer time, and then we'll talk about prayer, okay? Let's pray. And Lord, as we gather together, having uh, laid requests out and prayed by table, now we collectively come as a church and we ask that you would teach us tonight, that you would open your word, that your spirit would move among us and speak to us in the deepest parts of who we are so that we might be transformed and you might receive glory in our lives and the way we live, the way we pray especially. I thank you for this church and I thank you for its long commitment to be faithful to you and always. And we pray that you would help us going into a new year, that it would be just uh, another year of faithfulness by your people in this place. Help us to be attentive to your voice. Help us to be faithful and help us to be full of faith is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me ask you, what's the difference between a rut and a grave? <laughs> All right, one at a time. I'm, I'm, I'm hearing a rumbling, but I don't know if that's because you have to get me or not. So what's the difference between a rut and a grave, Beverly? What? The depth of it? Maybe so, yes. The rut, that's it. The rut has both ends kicked out. Here's what I want you to hear from that, all right? A rut is just a long grave. You might be able to get out of rut if you know that you need to get out of the rut. That's part of the deal. If you don't do something intentionally to get out of the rut, it will be your grave. All right? So how do you get out of a rut? Now I'm going to go into my counselor mode with you, okay? How do you get out of a rut? Let me back up before I give you an answer to that. I'm not sure I'm going to give you the answer, but I'll give you one answer to that question. But let's start with... What kind of ruts do we find ourselves in in our spiritual lives? Now, you don't have to answer that out loud, but I want you to be thinking about the answer to that question. What kind of ruts can we get into in our spiritual lives that if something doesn't change, it becomes a grave for us as it relates to spiritual vitality? Now, I'm going to suggest to you that prayer may well be one of those ruts for us spiritually. So let me come, and we're going to spend a lot of time on that tonight, so I'm going to leave that sitting there for a moment. And let's go back to the question, how do you get out of a rut? Because by definition, there's no exit. And so here's what I tell people in counseling kind of situations. If you are in a rut in your life, in a relationship, in your finances, in various things, if you're in a rut and you know that you will die there unless something changes, you better start digging holes in the side of it so that you can put a foot in it and then a hand in it and then just dig enough holes on the side of that thing so that you can crawl out, all right? So let me come back to that or back with that to our whole deal tonight about the rut that may well be our prayer lives. Now, I'm not making that as an accusation. I'm making that as a statement 
that comes out of about um, 36 years in ministry on a personal level, but also dealing with some of God's choice servants. Let me just turn the whole thing around and say it a different way. In the form of a question, have you ever been more vital? Let me rephrase that. Has there ever been more vitality in your Christian life than you're experiencing today? If there's ever been a day that you felt like you were closer to God than you are today, then you're in danger of living in a rut spiritually. So how do we do this and how do we get out of this? So welcome to part two of our Praying with Jesus series. I rather suspect this is going to take, I think I told you this when we started, that it may take us a year or so to get through the prayers of Jesus, what he prayed actually and also what he taught relative to prayer. But if we're going to use Wednesday night as a prayer meeting, and I think we should, and I'm glad we do, then I think that we should do so intentionally following the methods and the model that Jesus gives to us. So now, uh, well, let me come back. Where was the first part? This part two, so there had to be part one. So what was part one of praying with Jesus? All right, the Lord's Prayer. Some call it the model prayer. And so we started that, I think, maybe the second Wednesday night that I was here. And so now we're five months in, and we're going to take the next step. And I want us to go for the next, uh, for a while, we're going to be in John 17. The model prayer is uh, Matthew 6, and uh, Luke has a version of it also. But now we come to what some people call, and most people would call, scholars call it, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Uh, probably there's a better title that we could put on it if we felt like we needed to. But uh, we'll just stick with high priestly prayer for at least this week. And we're going to begin tonight to wade into John chapter 17. But I will tell you that John chapter 17, when it comes to prayer and Jesus praying himself, uh, provides some of the most dense teaching and prayer that we find in all of Scripture. It is, as one scholar says, it is the most intimate look into the thoughts and the spiritual thinking uh, functioning of Jesus himself. That's a huge statement for us. And John 17 records for us this prayer, and uh, so it will, it will serve for us part two in our Praying with Jesus series. So, as we do that tonight, I want to give you some prayer triggers. Uh, you might consider those, those handholds that we dig into the side of the, of the rut, okay? So if you find your prayer life being a little bit dry and a little less uh, lively than what it might have been in sometimes past, or maybe you think that there's got to be more to it than what you're experiencing, uh, let's dig a few handholds into this rut and see what Jesus teaches us. Here's some triggers. John chapter 17 in verse 1, and when Jesus had spoken these words, okay, I just got to stop there. Just don't, don't expect us to get out of verse 1 tonight, okay? You probably should go read the whole chapter in the week to come uh, and as we go forward. But uh, tonight, especially, I just want to kind of dip our toe into the water a little bit of what we find here. So it begins, here's the first trigger. Pay attention. Now, I'm not saying that to you about tonight. All right, I'm saying the first trigger in your prayer life 
is to pay attention. And this comes out of that first part of verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words. Now, good observational Bible study forces us to stop at that point. If it said, it does say, when Jesus had spoken these words. So observational Bible study forces us to stop and say, okay, what are the these words that Jesus is, or that John is talking about here? And in this particular case, these words and what that represents into this is what gives us this first trigger for what I consider to be vibrant prayer, and that is to pay attention. Let's go backwards with this. In this particular case, these words, as we find in verse 1, is a reference to chapters 13 through 16. Now, I already said tonight, I made a huge statement that this chapter 17 is one of the most dense uh, pictures of Jesus and his spiritual thinking. If you want to just make that even more dense, throw in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16. Now, most of us will know the content without even going back and looking at it. All I have to say is, you remember where Jesus washed Peter's feet and Peter... Loved it, right? Wrong. Peter went, whoa, wait a minute. That is chapter 13. We go into chapter 14, one of those most uh, quoted, at least by me, (laughs) uh, funeral passages is where we find that passage. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Okay, That's in this section of Scripture. We just work our way from chapters 13 all the way through chapter 16 And we find what some scholars call the final discourse or plural discourses that Jesus has with his disciples in those chapters. So verse 1 of chapter 17 in saying these things points back to everything that's included in chapter 13 through 16. So I'm going to recommend to you, because I'm not teaching a Bible study on those four chapters, I'm going to recommend that you go spend a little time in your own personal devotion time in those four chapters, because they're dense also, full of stuff for us. So now, back to verse 1 of chapter 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, pulls everything back from those four chapters. And what we find then is this prayer that he's about to pray is a continuation of the conversation. Don't miss that. It is a, the prayer here that Jesus is about to pray is a continuation of the conversation. But it's a continuation where Jesus essentially says, you guys hold on a minute, but based on what we've talked about, I'm going to pray a little bit now. That's why I say pay attention, because one of those things for us that can bring a little bit of freshness into our prayer lives is when we pay attention to what's going on around us and our prayer life becomes an extension of what we're experiencing. Here's why I say that. Often what happens is we reduce our prayer lives to lists. I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. But the rut becomes, if it's not on my prayer list, then it doesn't get prayed for. Or the rut becomes, I need to make sure that I get, in our case, as a church, we do several things very well as a church uh, relative to prayer. And one of those things is the prayer net that we send out every day. I love that about what we do as a church. 
Okay, there's a, there's a lot of really good byproducts that come from that. But if we're not careful, that becomes our only trigger for prayer. And if we miss, if we miss the email that day and our server doesn't do that anymore for some reason, then we may well be crippled in our daily prayer. So I'm not saying don't use it. I think you should use it. I hope you do. But what Jesus models for us, we haven't even gotten into the prayer itself. This is just a, a, a narrator's comment that we're talking about here. But what we find is Jesus begins to pray in chapter 17. He pulls the themes of what they've been talking about into the prayer. If you'll go back, and here's a few things for you to look at when you uh, study in chapters 13 through 16. That some of the themes that happened there come out of these seven different questions that the disciples asked Jesus. Here's the deal. Uh, sometimes we give the disciples too much credit. Sometimes we don't give them enough credit. This is probably one of those times when I'm not going to give them enough credit. Okay? But the disciples in chapters 13 through 16 are a little bit hard-headed. Jesus is having a discussion with them, and he's doing things with them that are tied to the final discourses. They're tied to the fact that he knows that he's about to go to the cross. Everything is about to change for those guys. And they just don't get it. And so there's this series of seven different questions that are asked. Simon Peter gets two of them. Judas, not Judas Iscariot, because he leaves in the early part of chapter 13 or in chapter 13, uh, but the other Judas, and Thomas has a question in there, and then there's some questions that we don't really know which of them, but it's really an interesting spread among the disciples, these seven different questions that try to understand what Jesus is saying to them. That's why we call them discourses, because they ask the questions based on what Jesus has already said. He begins to answer the question, but he doesn't answer them the way they want answers. He just keeps leading them into this I need more from you, Jesus. And so somewhere in the process of all of that, 16 to 17, Jesus says, hold on a second. I'm going to pray now. But in this prayer in chapter 17, he pulls some of those themes from 13 through 16 into his prayer. One of those themes is Jesus and his own departure and what's coming. And then some of the, about the disciples and their joy and some of the reality that the disciples will face relative to the world hating them. And those are themes that they've been talking about. Jesus now will use those as pieces of what he prays. All of that pushes me back to this first trigger, the first thing for us to do, and that is we need to pay attention to what's going on around us. Jesus takes the conversation and he moves it to prayer. How often do you do that? I don't want to answer out loud. I just want you to think about that to kind of hang on to it. In the everyday occurrences of your life, if you will pay attention, you will find many reasons for fresh, focused prayer. Now, it's not fair because I knew that I was going to be teaching this today, so I paid a little closer attention today. So let me use a couple of examples from my day that will help maybe to help you underscore what I'm talking about here. So somewhere this afternoon while I was uh, finalizing what I was going to be talking about tonight, um, I got a series of emails 
on the inter-office group, right? So uh, staff members here and uh, have a group, and so when we send emails in that group, it can go to everybody in the group, or it can be just you know one to one. And so we started. I started getting these emails from Jeremy, our new youth minister, and. I'm thinking about this and paying attention to what's going on and how it can vitalize, revitalize a prayer life. And so Jeremy is talking about the bulletin. Now, if there's ever, or the newsletter bulletin, if there's ever anything that should not trigger prayer, it's a discussion about the newsletter, right? Wrong. Because Jeremy's saying next Wednesday night, this is what, by the way, you just need to know he's on the job already. He's already working, right? So next Wednesday night, our youth are going to go to a citywide uh, youth function where youth from all over the city are going to worship together. Okay? That's a good thing. It's a, it helps our teenagers recognize that God's at work not just in this church but all over the place. Right? They go to school together. They probably ought to know that there are other Christians there too. It's a good thing. But this email comes through, and he's making sure that that gets announced in the bulletin for Sunday, and that triggered another email that we needed uh, vehicles ready for them to go and all that kind of stuff. And it caused me to stop and pray for Jeremy. You know why? Because I'm glad I don't have to go to a bunch of teenagers gathering somewhere. Well, it's actually more than that. Okay, so for my prayer for him this afternoon was, God, thank you for him, first of all. And secondly, uh, help him to grow spiritually beyond what he even wants. You say, that's a good prayer for anybody. And then it became, okay, so I also probably ought to pray for his family because as God begins to use him in the lives of teenagers, Satan becomes a little more defensive about that. And so one of the easiest places for the enemy to attack is inside of our families. And so it triggered that prayer for me. And so for about a five-minute stretch triggered by some emails that normally I would not have paid attention to, I didn't have anything to do with that other than just being informed. It gave me an opportunity to pray for Jeremy, but then I started thinking, you know, I really probably ought to start praying for those teenagers of ours. You know, I mean, we've all used to say this when we were teenagers to our parents. You just don't understand what it's like to be a teenager. It's not like it used to be when you were a teenager. You know what? Those teenagers say that to us today. They're right about that. They have pressures and issues that none of us would have ever dreamed we would have to deal with as teenagers. One of the most influential times in the life of a teenager spiritually is in those years between 7th and 12th grade where we train them, we hope, to be rebellious in the most productive way so that they can go off to college and be fully functioning adults who still believe in Jesus Christ. We need to be praying for our teenagers. All of that in my life today was triggered by an email that I didn't have anything to do with. So what I want you to get from that is pay attention. If you need to dig some handholds in the rut of your prayer life, just pay attention to what's going on around you. Watch the news. <laughs> I'm not really going to recommend that very often. <laughs> but if you're lacking on something fresh to pray about, watch the news with spiritual eyes. Pay attention.
All of this grows out of what we find in Jesus or in John actually saying when Jesus had spoken these words. One other thing just to drive it home. I skipped lunch today, which means by the time we started walking through this line, I was crazy hungry. But you know, somewhere in the middle of the afternoon, I started realizing that I had skipped lunch today. I started getting hungry. And it was like the Lord said, there's something to pray about. Do you want to pay attention? How long has it been? This is me, me and the Lord. How long has it been since I've been so spiritually hungry that I recognized that something was missing? Well, I don't want this just to be about me, so let me just throw that question in your lap. How long has it been since you prayed, God, quench my thirst spiritually, quench my hunger spiritually? That's the first one. Pay attention. Here's the second one. It grows out of that. And the second trigger, I think, for moving out of the rut of prayer is to have focus. Sounds like it's a little much, the, uh, pretty much the same thing. It's really not. As you begin to pay attention to what's around you, and that triggers prayer on an ongoing basis through the course of the day. By the way, that first part that I'm just talking about, I think begins to get towards part of what Paul talked about when he says over in the New Testament, pray without ceasing. It becomes one of those things where it's this ongoing give and take with God and you see what's going on around you and it causes you to do that. But you may begin to have a little problem moving seamlessly between those two worlds. So look at the rest of verse 1. We're almost going to finish the verse. When Jesus had spoken these things, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. Let me ask you, why do you think he did that? Okay, so here's how this works. I'll ask a question, and you feel free to respond. <laughs> Why do you think he did that? Okay, it's a point of reference, right? If he knows that God's in heaven, that's the quickest, best way we know. It's, by the way, something that Jesus did on a regular basis. You go back through the New Testament, the Gospels, and you'll find that on a re fairly regular basis, when we find Jesus praying, he lifts his eyes to heaven and he prays. But let me take you back into that upper room where these guys are all gathered. And they've had four chapters worth of giving back and forth in this dialogue that's ongoing. And as I said, Jesus says, hold on a second, I'm going to pray about this. He doesn't say that, right? Okay, here's how this works. I'll ask a question and you, okay. He doesn't say, hold on, I'm going to pray. If you'll go back and look at that, he's in the middle of this discussion. It's a long discussion. And all of a sudden, John interrupts and he says, Jesus had spoken these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. Put yourself in the room. And so you're having this conversation. Clearly, all 11 of the disciples are engaged in that conversation. And all of a sudden, somebody says something. Like you find, well, Jesus says it at the end of chapter 16. And then the focus shifts. No longer is he looking at them, having discussion with them, engaging them. Now he looks up, which is his trigger. I'm going to pray now. And the disciples get that. I want you to make sure that we recognize the disciples are part of this. This is an instruction time for them as they see Jesus praying. It's not the first time. 
You remember in Luke 11, I think it is, where the disciples watch Jesus praying, and then they come to him and say, hey, Lord, teach us to pray, would you? So this is kind of what they've seen in the past, but Jesus now shifts the focus from here to here. That's a good teaching point for us, I think, in the way we approach prayer. Is this, okay, I'm going to use words that sound the same, but they mean differently. Is this prescriptive or descriptive? Is Jesus with this, and John by including it, is he telling us we have to pray that way, or is he just describing what Jesus did? Here's what I think. I don't think you believe that he's telling us that's how we have to do it. The reason I believe that is because I watched you pray 30 minutes ago and everybody at your table had your head bowed, not looking up. Right? Jesus does what he does. It's important for us that we have whatever trigger we need to make the switch from this is just normal living to I'm going to a very important time of prayer now. I had that, and here's a recommendation for you. Find a place. We used to call these prayer closets, whatever you choose to call it. But have a place or some kind of a trigger so that when you go to do intimate prayer, that's the third one I'll talk about in just a second, but when you go to do that, your brain doesn't have to figure out, am I just doing normal everyday stuff or am I going into a time of prayer with God? Now, when I pastored at Edinburgh, uh, they <laughs> one of the ladies in the church came in to my office one day, and she was a fairly new member, and I had baptized her husband and her two daughters and her, and it was a great thing, a great family. And she came into my office, and she looked around, and she said, this is horrible. And I thought, thanks. Um, she said, would it be okay if we just totally renovated your office? I said, Okay, so I know you didn't come from a Baptist background. Let me talk to you about how that happens in a Baptist church. And so she got elected to the, hospital, uh, to the decorating committee, and then she had them do it. But eventually it got redone, right? But one of the things that they did when they renovated that office, they put a big overstuffed chair and an ottoman in there. And it had a love seat and a full couch. And it was a big office, had lots of room, and so... Uh, and so that's where I did counseling most of the time. But I found that when I would try to sit at my desk where I did all my study and all that kind of stuff, when it came time for me to do what I considered to be the real work of prayer, I could not sit behind my desk and do that. Because sitting behind my desk was where I did other things. It's where I took care of business for the church and studying and those kind of things. And so when it came time for me to pray in that just totally locked in with God, i go sit in that chair. Do you have a place like that? Do you have some kind of trigger in your life, some kind of either a, a place or uh, even as simple as like Jesus did, just lifting your eyes to heaven, where you can just like that step out of the everyday stuff into the throne room of God? If you lose the ability to recognize I'm going into the throne room of heaven where Almighty God is listening to this conversation, if you lose that, then you're going to get in a rut in your prayer life in short order. Because it's not just a religious ritual that we do. 
It's not just going through a list and mouthing the words that are tied to the people on that list. It is going into the throne room of heaven, doing spiritual business with a living God. So Jesus takes that shift. The disciples get it. Jesus gets it. And it becomes this transition in the prayer time. That pushes me to the third one. And I'm, I've got two minutes, so listen fast. The third one comes out of the same verse. We'll go back and read the whole thing. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, and all I'm going to get to is the first word of his prayer, Father. Now, we've caught Jesus using that term before in prayer, right? We talked about that in the model prayer. But this is different. As a matter of fact, I would say, and I agree with one of the scholars that I was reading about uh, what he had to say about this earlier, this is much more intimate than what the model prayer lays out. Because the model prayer says, Our Father in heaven. It's not that it's not intimate. We talked a lot about that and why it is intimate. But here, this is Jesus and his Father one-on-one conversation. And it is as intimate as you get I had a phone conversation today. I was telling Teresa and Arlie about it while we were eating. Uh, an hour and five minutes on phone with one of those people who answers the phone from one of those businesses out there. An hour and five minutes. An hour and five minutes. I have to tell you, I was thinking I should be praying about 40 minutes into that prayer, or into that phone call. I was dealing with an issue that is not life and death. Just, it was really not that big a deal. Save a little bit of money maybe. Uh, has to do with the move and all that stuff. And so I was dealing with that. And while I was dealing with that, I was also doing some work and, um, because a lot of that time was just on hold. And somewhere in there, Teresa texted me. So I'm having a phone conversation. I'm texting my wife and I'm working. And... And it dawned on me the difference in the conversation between me and the person on the other end of the phone and me and my wife. I'm pretty sure, y'all know Teresa pretty well by now, I'm pretty sure that if I talked to her like I talk to just business people, she would be offended by that. Would I? Would you? Yeah. Okay. You know why? Because she's my wife. Now, I have my, you know, my dad and his health situation. I find it increasingly difficult to have deep conversations with my dad because it's just not possible on the health level. But I go back to times with my dad, especially those times when I was working with him and God had repaired some relationship stuff, uh, and some of the things that he taught me and some of the conversations that we had on the golf course or in the office, uh, sitting in his living room or mine, uh, and, and it's, it's different. The conversations on an intimate level cannot be handled like they're just ritual. If we go to that throne room of heaven and have a discussion with God where we treat him like it's just a business deal, I'm not sure if God gets offended by that or not, but I'm pretty sure he didn't like it. At the very least, we have to say that we are the ones who lose out when we reduce prayer to that. Father, 
he says. And by the time we work our way through this, we're going to find that, here's a little homework for you. Go through here, this prayer in chapter 17, and count the number of times Jesus refers to God as Father. And count the number of times that he talks about I and you and the ongoing relationship that they have that colors that prayer. One of the things that gets in our way of vibrant prayer is reducing prayer to just a ritual. And so I want to be careful as I recommend this. But in your prayer, one of those handholds that you dig into the rut is that you find a way to personalize your conversation with God. I don't know what that looks like for you. I know for me, that when I, especially in Edinburgh, and I've got other ways now, just trying to keep those a little closer to the vest, but in Edinburgh, I'd sit down in that prayer and start having a conversation with God. It was as if he was sitting across the room from me, and we were just talking. So the trigger here is be audience-specific. Make sure that he is your audience in prayer. You know, sometimes we make prayer an announcement, right? We do that in church. Lord, we pray for those teenagers because you remember that they're supposed to be here at 8 o'clock tomorrow afternoon so, so that they can get on the bus and they've got to be sure and bring their $20 that they're supposed to. You know, we reduce prayer to all kinds of stuff in church, sometimes announcements and sometimes just a ritual. Don't forget that he is your heavenly father and it is a give and take kind of thing with prayer. So there's a half of one verse. Maybe next week we'll get the other half, all right? God bless you. Let's pray and we'll go. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it. Thank you for challenging us with it. Thank you for your spirit who breathes life into it and takes us to places we would never know to go or know how to get to in our own spiritual growth and development. Change us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of your week.